this week, the U.S. targets Russia with hundreds of sanctions over its invasion of Ukraine and the death of outspoken Putin critic Alexei Navalny. Ensure that Putin pays a price for his aggression abroad and repression at home. As Ukrainians mark a second year of war, a look at the human impact and the silver linings as people learn to endure. You know, the same time that there has been massive dispossession, massive disruption, these experiences have also given rise to transformation. The armed forces have been transformed, not only by expanding, but by their inclusion of women. Also, we turn to the Middle East, a conversation on redefining a two-state solution. Join us on The Voice of America as we explore the issues in the news. Hello, I'm Rick Pantaleo with Lori London, a somber milestone. Two years ago, shortly before dawn, Russian troops marched across the border in Ukraine. And Putin believed he could easily bend the will and break the resolve of the free people of Ukraine. That he could roll into Ukraine and he would roll over them. Two years later, he remains wrong. Kyiv is still standing, Ukraine is still free, and the people of Ukraine remain unbowed and unbroken in the face of Putin's vigorous onslaught. Two years since Russia invaded Ukraine and following the death of imprisoned Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny, the European Union and the United States announced sweeping new sanctions Friday. Here's President Joe Biden. Make no mistake, Putin is responsible for Alexei's death. Yesterday, I met with Alexei's wife and daughter in California, where his daughter attends college. Alexei was an incredibly courageous man. His family is courageous as well. I assured them his legacy will continue to live around the world, and we in the United States are going to continue to ensure that Putin pays the price for his aggression abroad and repression at home. The sanctions targeting more than 500 individuals and entities related to Russia's war machine are the largest single round of penalties the U.S. has imposed since Moscow's invasion. White House National Security Communications Advisor John Kirby vowed the U.S. would keep up the pressure on Russia. You can expect more from the administration with respect to holding the Kremlin accountable for Mr. Navalny's death. Today was just the start. The United Nations says more than 10,000 civilians have been killed and nearly 20,000 others wounded since the start of the Russian invasion. After enduring two years of war as communities are reduced to rubble and with uncertainty for the future, Lori London asked Greta Euling, professor at the University of Michigan's Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies, if Ukrainians are growing war-weary. That's an important question. Um, and I think that, you know, a lot has been said about war weariness in Ukraine, but weary is sh should never be confused with defeated, right? We mustn't conflate those two things. Um, life under bombardment and the air raid sirens are, of course, taxing to continuing your life, but many people in our cities in particular have found ways to carry on. And I also think that the war weariness, the emphasis on that particular response 
fails to capture some other very important emotions. There's a very broad and individual spectrum that can't really be captured by a single story. And among the people that I routinely communicate with in Ukraine, two important responses that come up frequently are rage and betrayal. The question being, why is the country being given just enough to survive, but not enough to win? That's raises a secondary question is what are all of these terrible losses for, right? Because the human impact has been so profound with 400 military casualties, uh, 50, some between 20 and 50,000 people have lost limbs, hundreds, potentially thousands of children removed from the country and um, an estimated 10,000 Ukrainian prisoners in Russian holding facilities. Not to mention the, the military casualties and the fact that Somewhere around, you know, 25% of the country is not living in their homes. Um, I would say that another thing to think about in relation to how people are coping is this very significant experience of uncertainty. So there's fear for the safety of loved ones that may be fighting at the front or um, may have been displaced. And, you know, my recent book, Everyday War, I talk about how the engagement of civilians um, in war produces these everyday ethics of care, right? So my research found people showing levels of care for one another that they characterized as un unprecedented. And really, I think that the developments since the full-scale invasion just amplify those findings, right? So by everyday war, I mean these conscious and creative ways that non-combatants respond to and participate in war in ways that are chromatic, self-defensive, designed with the interest of their country as a whole in mind. And so, you know, many of the Ukrainians who are not fighting have developed creative ways to contribute to the war effort by donating to it. So for, uh, I think a really good example would be the artist's who donate proceeds to their effort, right? So you can buy a scarf or socks on, on Etsy, and the artist will tell you exactly how many bullets the purchase of your, whatever it is, $20, $25 scarf or sock translates into. So, you know, at the same time that there has been massive dispossession, massive disruption, these experiences have also given rise to transformation, right? There's there's an explosion of interest in Ukrainian language and literature. The armed forces have been transformed not only by expanding, but by their inclusion of women. So new forms of communication through platforms like Telegram and memes and other social media platforms have are fostering social cohesion across divisions that used to keep people from communicating. So I think that um, it's really a complex picture of both, you know, dispossession and disruption coupled with transformation. In the beginning, when this started, people were lining up to serve. We're hearing stories that that's, that's not the case now at all. So is it just people are just afraid now of losing their lives? It's at an inflection point for sure, at least for now. Aid is stalling and there must be some concern for the country's survival. Oh, by all means. By all means. I mean, I think that there's profound concern. And as you mentioned, you know, the popularity of the military conscription has fallen precipitously. And I think that here again, it's important to remember that the people who are fighting, they're saying that they would rather keep fighting than risk 
a pause that might enable them to regroup, but then they would have to face the prospect of going back to the front yet again, you know, with another another incursion. So I think it's complicated. Um, I think it's difficult. I think that as during the, you know, the initial full-scale invasion in 2022, February, the country continues to face an existential crisis. There's no question. There's no question. So it's important to remember that the World Bank, USAID, the European Union, European governments, all of these partners are also involved. The attention has been pretty focused on the importance of weapons from the United States that European right. don't have the ability to provide. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I think, you know, the, the sense of rage and betrayal alongside the weariness is, is good to underscore. Are they, are they feeling sort of betrayed by the United States? Yes, because, you know, the United States, Ukraine will, willingly gave up its nuclear weapons in 1994 under the Budapest Memorandum with security assurances that, you know, the U.S. and Great Britain in particular would rise to their defense in the event of a violation of their state sovereignty. And now the U.S. government is saying, well, maybe not. So that's betrayal. It's political, too. Obviously, the White House has been pushing very, very hard for supporting Ukraine, um, but he can't without congressional approval. It sounds like President Biden may be working on ways around that at this point. Going into year three, is there a sense of what happens if we don't get the support and what happens? Right. I mean, it could be that Russia takes over the country, or it could be that it's a really protracted, gruesome, street-by-street street fight. There's really no good options unless Ukraine is supplied with the weapons that it needs for a decisive victory that forces Russia to, you know, relinquish captured territory and come to a definitive cessation of hostilities. I don't see a good option without provision of military aid. And so I would imagine that mood of outrage and anger, there's probably a deep-rooted collective grief. Yes. Every Ukrainian has lost somebody. And every Ukrainian has to wonder what it was for if ultimately the military aid with which they began the counteroffensive trickles out. You know, why did their loved one have to sacrifice their life if it was ultimately just in, you know, part of this failed effort? Greta Euling, professor at the University of Michigan Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies. With the death of Alexei Navalny, Russia's recent capture of a key Ukrainian city and U.S. military aid to support Kyiv stalled in Congress, European leaders are concerned the Kremlin could be emboldened to press forward with ambitions beyond Ukraine's borders. Lori London asks Jamil Jaffer, founder and executive director of the National Security Institute, if he thinks new U.S. sanctions will deter Russia. Well, look, Lori, I think it's really hard to see how even more sanctions, which are very helpful and will, will have an effect, how they would ultimately deter Vladimir Putin from his current course. He has demonstrated already that he's willing to flout U.S. and EU sanctions. He's worked with the Chinese and other countries, Iran, to evade those sanctions, to sell his oil, to obtain weaponry and the like. And so it's hard for me to imagine. There's no doubt that increasing the sanctions on the Russian military industrial complex, increasing sanctions on their energy sector, increasing sanctions on their banks is beneficial and it will help, but it won't ultimately deter the bad actions of Vladimir Putin. What will deter him is the Ukrainians 
Ukrainians winning the fight or increasingly gaining ground. And the way to do that is to give the Ukrainians what they need to strike Vladimir Putin and his army where it hurts, which is their supply lines back in Russia, where they're bringing in more material from. If the Ukrainians are able to do that with capabilities that the U.S. has not yet been willing to put in the fight, I think we could see a potential opportunity to really push back on Russia and put them on their heels. Do you think, given all of the things we have seen regarding Russia, whether it's the death of opposition leaders or American arrests or interference in U.S. elections, do you think this is a sign that he's feeling emboldened? But it's a little bit of both. I think that Vladimir Putin is both emboldened in the sense that he thinks he can do these things and get away with them. But I also think it shows some amount of desperation. And what do I mean by that? You know, the fact that he had Alexei Navalny already locked up in a prison outside of Moscow until December for a year or two, and then felt the need to move him to an Arctic prison in December, and then felt the need to actually kill him in that Arctic prison in just this month, demonstrates that he feels the heat from Navalny. He feels the internal opposition rising up against him. He feels that the war in Ukraine isn't going as well as he thought it would. At the same time, the fact that he thinks he can kill Navalny and get away with it, the fact that he thinks he can invade Ukraine and keep that part of eastern Ukraine like he did with Crimea, demonstrates that he is emboldened to take action, but also recognizes his own vulnerabilities and is lashing out. And there are real growing concerns, though, across Europe that he has bigger ambitions and may, in fact, be planning to go beyond Ukraine's borders and engage in some sort of conflict with even a NATO ally. But we've known this. We've known that Vladimir Putin has designs on reestablishing the Soviet Union of old. He said it almost explicitly. So it's not like neither he nor President Xi in China have, have hidden from us what their agenda is. President Xi wants to take back Taiwan. He wants to oppress more than a million Muslims. He wants to expand their footprint global oppression. And the same thing with Vladimir Putin. We are the ones who are not listening and paying attention. And to the extent we are, are not doing anything effective about it. And so you think about there's an opportunity early on in this fight where the Ukrainians were winning. And if we had really doubled down then and given them everything they needed, they could have pushed Vladimir Putin out, embarrassed him dramatically. But we were afraid of escalation. We were afraid if we put the weapons in, that would cause him to escalate. And of course, the problem is it's the weakness that we've been demonstrating that causes them, causes the Iranians, causes the Chinese to escalate. When they see America as weak, or our allies is weak, and they see both of us as weak right now, they are prepared to escalate and will continue to do so until we actually push back. And so this misplaced notion that if we put more weapons in, it'll escalate it, it's already escalating. So far, that's stalled out. Republicans in Congress, in the House of Representatives, don't even want to take up the bill at this point. What happens if the U.S. does not come through? Well, I think if the U.S. doesn't come through, Ukraine collapses, Russia takes the rest of Ukraine, takes Kyiv, and then thinks about what's next and looks at Poland and says the U.S. isn't willing to defend Ukraine and fight us there. Maybe they won't defend Poland. Maybe they won't defend a NATO ally, right? And I think that's what the real worry is. And we have a war inside of Europe, which we already have going on. Now, look, this isn't just about Republicans in Congress, though. The problem is the Biden administration has not had a plan to win. So, yes, Republicans in Congress need to get their stuff together and, 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 and support the Ukraine aid, right, and the Israel aid and the border security money. It's crazy that they're not doing that. At the same time, until the Biden administration has a plan for Ukraine to win and not to spend billions of dollars for multiple years over and over with thousands of civilians dying, right, nobody would support a plan like that. And so the you know, President Biden has made clear we're with Ukraine until the end, but he's had a scribe. What is the end? What does a win look like? And what are we going to do to get the Ukrainians there? Then Republicans should support that, which will be take more money and more material that, that's even in this package. But remember, by the way, Lori, it's worth noting this money is not going to Ukraine primarily. The vast majority of the money we're talking about 
is to rebuild American stockpiles and to build weapons here in this country to fight the Russians over there. There are some analysts that say Vladimir Putin is just buying his time to potentially see and potentially help former President Donald Trump get elected, who has vowed to pull the U.S. out of NATO and pretty much tell Russia it can do whatever it wants. That would be a pretty dangerous scenario, would it not? Well, there's no doubt the U.S. should not leave NATO, right? Anybody who says that is wrong and should have their head checked. NATO has been the bulwark of American security for ourselves here in the United States and for our allies in Europe. To be fair, President Trump was talking about the payments that, that our allies are making. And so he didn't actually say we would draw for NATO, but he did say some things that were ridiculous, like he'd give free pass to Russia to go after whoever they wanted that didn't pay their fair share. That's a little different than getting out of NATO, but not that much. And it was really problematic. And he should take that back. It was the wrong thing to say. At the same time, you know, we do want our European allies to step up and they need to do their part. We need to do our part. NATO is critical to American security. We should stand by it. And any signal to Vladimir Putin that we are not 100% behind NATO, and we're not 100% behind our allies, and that they're with us is a problem for the alliance writ large. All right. Jamil Jaffer, founder and executive director of the National Security Institute. We always appreciate your perspective. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on, Lori. You're listening to Issues in the News. I'm Rick Pantaleo. The long-awaited post-war plan by Israel's Prime Minister shows that his government seeks open-ended control over security and civilian affairs in the Gaza Strip. It includes the occupied West Bank and Gaza territories where the Palestinians hope to establish an independent state, something Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has repeatedly opposed. The Knesset voted overwhelmingly to oppose any attempt to unilaterally impose a Palestinian state on Israel. Such an attempt will only endanger Israel and will prevent the genuine peace that we all seek. Peace can only be achieved after we achieve total victory over Hamas. The plan, swiftly rejected by Palestinian leaders, also runs counter to Washington's vision for the war-ravaged enclave. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said Friday that he was also disappointed to hear of Israeli plans to build thousands more new homes in occupied West Bank settlements. It's been long-standing U.S. policy under Republican and Democratic administrations alike that new settlements are counterproductive to reaching an enduring peace. They're also inconsistent with international law. Our administration maintains a firm opposition to settlement expansion. Netanyahu's day-after plan comes amid growing international calls to end the fighting and to revive efforts aimed at a two-state solution, which U.S. President Joe Biden, Israel's main ally, has said is the solution that will bring long-term peace. Lori London spoke with John Alterman, Middle East Program Director with the Center for Strategic and International Studies, who recently wrote an article making the case for defining the issue in a different way. Your article leads with a different two-state solution. What do you mean by that? So sometimes the way to solve intractable problems is to make them larger, to redefine some of the parameters. And it seems to me that when we talk about a two-state solution, it draws you down into problems that people have struggled with for decades and been unsatisfied with the answers. And maybe if we rethink some of the terms, rethink the possibilities, you can find a pathway to something that's acceptable to both sides. You know, the nature of a negotiation is neither side is ever completely happy, but each side gets what it needs. And it seemed to me that that there's a way when we talk about a two-state solution in the traditional terms, where we're talking about 
really fine lines and borders, complete sovereignty. The Israelis are very uncomfortable with the idea of Palestinians having complete sovereignty because they think that that will mean that you will have exactly what they had in Gaza, emerging both in Gaza and the West Bank. I think the Palestinians say, well, how can we really get our land if, if there are settlers among us everywhere? Doesn't that prevent us from ever having contiguous, viable Palestinian state? And I think if you can rework some of these terms and rework the terms of what a solution looks like, understanding that a solution doesn't mean all the problems go away. A solution gives you a way to deal with the challenges where people aren't dying every day. Maybe rethinking these terms is, is a way to get there. And already a level of mistrust was there. There's profound mistrust. Certainly deepened on both sides since October 7th in the aftermath of that horrible day and, and what has come after that in response. And they're, realistically, these are two terribly traumatized societies. And they're not merely traumatized by October 7th and the aftermath, but their trauma was profoundly deepened by both October 7th and the aftermath. We have to acknowledge that trauma, but we can't let that trauma drive us toward sustained trauma, toward new generations that grow up in trauma. I think finding a different way to imagine where we're going, a different kind of horizon, understanding it's not perfect, but understanding here's a way to meet Israeli concerns about security, Palestinian concerns about not only independence, but also there needs to be some external involvement protecting Palestinian interests in this. I mean, the Palestinians are responsible, but there's also a referee in this game. That thinking about some of those terms, you know, to me, part of the inspiration is the European Union is a different kind of structure. You have individual states, but then there's this superseding European identity, set of responsibilities, regulations. And I think if we can think of the Israeli-Palestinian environment with an aspect of that, yeah, you, you have a state but the state also has other responsibilities, enforceable responsibilities, that that may be a way to get this away from a zero-sum situation, which it's really been for 75 years. So is this the boiling point of what's been simmering for all those years? Is this the catalyst that may potentially or has the potential to bring about real change? I think it will definitely bring about real change. And the question is whether it's for the better or for the worse. I could certainly see this bringing about real change for the worse. I could see both Israel being much more isolated in the world, but also Israel being absolutely committed to enforcing a, an environment in Palestine that Palestinians find increasingly intolerable, and it gets you into a series of extended military operations and sustained security threats to both Israelis and Palestinians alike. Or you could see it as a way to redefine the problem. I mean, certainly, even in the, the weeks after October 7th, it seemed to me that October 7th provided a way, a pathway for Israel's normalization with the Arab states as part of a broader deal for Palestinian self-determination in time. But you have to you have to be willing to consider a different a different set of outcomes than the way people have thought about it. Because I, I think the, the way we have thought about it up to now hasn't worked and it's gotten more difficult, not less. As you noted, both sides share similar desires and resources. They do. And one of the things that really strikes me when I, an elementary school friend posted on LinkedIn, a Joan Rivers commentary about how Israel should just cross the Palestinians because they're violent and they're killing us and all those things. And what struck me is everything, single thing she said is stuff I've heard Palestinians saying about Israelis and Israelis saying about Palestinians. The mirror image that people have of 
about the ultimate intentions of their adversary. The fact that we're willing to take something less, but we're dealing with people who have no limits. That they're the ones who are indifferent to human life. They're the ones who are bent on violence. For Israelis, th th there needs to be a moment when they can be empathetic to Palestinians without showing weakness. There needs to be a Palestinian ability to be empathetic with Israelis and not be perceived as being a, a traitor to the Palestinian cause. Because I think any sensible person has to be empathetic to both sides. There's truth on both sides. And until each side understands that what they believe is true and what the other side believes is true as well, that's the only way you can begin to get to a point where people can stop fighting. Now, I know there are certainly Israelis and there are certainly Palestinians who tell me, you know what? Every problem doesn't have a solution. And we can either fight or we can lose, and we're not willing to lose, so it means we, we're just condemned to fight. I understand that perspective. I don't think it's the only perspective. And again, I think the key is for each side to appreciate that while their side is true, the other side is true too, and that requires thinking about pathways toward a solution that maybe redefine some terms, maybe create new paradigms, but ultimately lead to an environment that is not only better for them, but even more importantly, better for their children and grandchildren that they can live safely and prosperously in a land they feel connected to, where they feel they and their descendants will have a future. John Alterman, Middle East Program Director with the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And that does it for this week's show. On behalf of Rick Pantaleo and all of us here at VOA, thank you so much for listening. Join us next week for more Issues in the News. Until then, I'm Lori London.